We are in the final week of our marriage and relationship series called Him and Her, and we're taking a look at what the Bible says about marriage and how to have a great one, because none of us got into marriage desiring to be average. None of us aspire to an average marriage now or in the future. And if you want what others don't have, you have to do what others are not doing. And with that in mind, with the desire to have exceptional marriages, we kicked off our series by looking at the importance of being best friends with your spouse. Then we looked at how to deal with conflict in a marriage. And if you missed either or both of those messages, I want to encourage you to listen to them online. I think you'll find them helpful and encouraging. And this week, we're going to look at doing good to your spouse. Specifically, we're going to be taking a look at the role of sex in a marriage. You should be so glad you came to church today. It's intended to be a source of blessing, but Satan desires to make it a source of frustration, temptation, and tension in a marriage. Fortunately, God has some things to share with us in his word. He not only has advice and insight, but actual commands, instructions on the characteristics that are to mark the sex life of a married Christian. We're going to start by talking about one practical non-sexual point, then we're going to move on to dealing with some things that can sabotage a good and godly sex life. Then we're going to talk about what a good, in the truest sense of the word, sex life looks like. And then once all of our minds are in that place, I have to figure out how to transition us into a time of worship and communion after the message. We're planning on singing the song, You've Done Great Things, so maybe that'll be an apropos song for us to be singing. The men will be singing loudly if this message goes well. So I want to begin with one tip that I stumbled across as I was just doing research for this message series. And it was just too good not to pass on, even though it doesn't necessarily fit with this message. But it's going to help you build confidence in your spouse that you love them. It'll help to build that trust that we learned in week one is so foundational to a good marriage. And it'll make your spouse feel secure in the fact that you're attracted to them, which is a vital ingredient in a good sex life. So here it is. Here it is. Write this down. If you think something good about your spouse, say it to them. If you think something good about your spouse, Say it to them, whether it's face-to-face, over an email, over a text message, over a phone call. It doesn't matter. Just get it out and say it to them. Don't rob them of a blessing by keeping that thought to yourself. Anytime during the day you have a positive thought about your spouse, say it to them, just however short it is. If it's as simple as, you're hot, that's great. Who doesn't want to hear that? If you watch a couple that's crazy arguing in the mall and you think, I'm so glad My wife is not crazy. You just send her a quick text message saying, thank you for being so easy to be married to. You don't want to use the word crazy. you got to rephrase it. Thank you for being so easy to be married to. Whatever it is, say it. And I want to encourage you to put this into practice this week because we rarely do this intentionally, even though we often think kind and flattering things about our spouse. So wherever you are, if you're driving, just remember it as soon as you stop and can legally send them a text message, just do that. They'll love it. And if you're a man, I promise There will be benefits to reap for this. I guarantee it. So our culture and media work so hard to distort and pervert what sex is designed to be. Culture tells men that we're supposed to have a woman who looks gorgeous, never ages, pops out kids with no physical after effects, and has the sex drive of a 16-year-old boy. Men, listen. That woman does not exist. She does not exist. But there's worse news. If she did exist, she could probably do better than you. So it's not going to happen one way or another. For a lot of couples, sex is one of the greatest challenges in marriage. You know, it seemed so simple before we were married. It was just, I'm attracted to you, you're attracted to me. The equation works. Or to be more precise, the man was thinking, you're willing to have sex with me if we get married. Therefore, the equation works. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And when you read that, do you notice that it doesn't even say he who finds a good wife? God is just like men. If you can find someone who's willing to marry you, you've done well. And the reason is because, this is your next fill-in, marriage is primarily about discipleship. 
It's about discipleship. You see, God uses your spouse as a means to grow you in Christ-likeness. Marriage is a constant call, day in and day out, to die to yourself, put others ahead of yourself, and live as a servant to someone other than yourself. And I agree with the pastor who said, we don't need men to grow up so that they can get married. We need men to get married so that they can grow up. And you can come up with your own theory if you want, but I believe the reason that sex seems so simple as an idea before marriage and can seem so difficult after marriage is because God uses the prospect of sex to get us, specifically men, to commit to marriage. It's the carrot dangling in front of the donkey, for lack of a better word. And then once we're into the marriage, once we've made the commitment, God is like, okay, now we can go to work on some deeper things. So if you do things God's way, and you only have sex once you're married, it will provide a man with the drive to get a job, to find somewhere to live, and to figure out what he's going to do with his life. I need a job. Why? Because nobody will marry and have sex with a man who doesn't have a job. I need to find a place to live. Why? Because nobody will marry and have sex with a man who doesn't have a place to live. You see how God uses the prospect of sex as a motivational tool to make a man get a life. And so what happens when you don't do things God's way? What happens if you had a a whole culture where men didn't need to get a life in order to have sex? They didn't need to get a job. They didn't need to find a place to live. They didn't need to have a purpose to their life. Well, you'd have an entire generation of men who are in no hurry at all to grow up because the motivation is no longer there. They can get it whenever they want. Can you imagine? Can't even imagine what that would be like. So God gets a man to find a job. He gets a man to find a place to live and grow up a little bit using the prospect of sex as a motivational tool, and that's a good thing. Then once we get married, God goes to work from a different angle, and he says, okay, Now to have a great sex life in marriage, you're going to need to learn to put your spouse ahead of yourself and live as a servant. And as long as you and I fight that work that God wants to do in us, our sex life will suffer for it. But when we begin to agree with God that yes, it's a good thing for me to live that way, when you allow God to shape you and grow you and begin to peel back those layers of selfishness, your sex life will be blessed for it. Marriage is primarily about discipleship. When you resist what the Lord wants to do in your life and try and keep your life about yourself, your sex life will suffer. When you embrace what the Lord wants to do in you and follow his calling to live as a servant, especially to your spouse, your sex life will be blessed. So write this down. To have a great sex life, your spouse must be the priority. Your spouse must be the priority. That's the first thing you need to know. Your next fill-in's coming up right now. The second thing you need to know is that the foundation of a great sex life is radical exclusivity. Radical exclusivity. Marriage and sex are designed by God to work well when both spouses commit to radical exclusivity. Here's what we're talking about. We're talking about the commitment to have your needs met only by your spouse and to likewise be the only one who meets your spouse's needs. You're committing, you're only gonna go to your spouse to have your emotional, sexual needs met and that you're willing to meet their needs. Marriage is a commitment to forsake all others. It means you don't have any backup plans tucked away. The contrast between what Jesus desires for us and what Satan desires for us is made crystal clear in John 10.10 when Jesus says, the thief does not come except to steal and kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. This verse is so important because what Jesus is doing is he's saying, let me tell you the motivation behind everything I do and the motivation behind everything Satan does when it comes to your life and my life. Jesus says, my motivation is to give you life. That's my motivation. It's what's behind every law, every command, every instruction, everything in the word of God, your good, life. And he says, in contrast, destruction is what is behind everything Satan does. That's his motivation is to destroy you, to steal from you to bring death into every area of your life. 
And it's so important to really wrap your head around this because what Jesus is saying is no matter what's going on on the surface, you need to remember the driving motivation of your Father in heaven and the driving motivation of your enemy, your adversary, the devil. And the reason that's a big deal, the reason why I'm pointing this out is that especially in the area of sex, Satan loves to deceive. He loves to present pictures where it looks fun and exciting to just ignore everything God says and do things our way. And the Lord would say, listen, remember, remember, look deeper. There is death, destruction, and stealing behind everything Satan does. So if you look at it and you go, oh, it looks pretty good, Jesus would say, look deeper. Look at the fallout. Look at the consequences. Look at the damaged lives. Look at the babies that are killed before they ever have a chance to be born. Look at all the negative effects because we know what the motivation is of the enemy who is against God and is against us. One of the best examples I can give of this is the issue of premarital sex, so sexual activity with another person before marriage. And don't think there's some loophole here like, are we talking about technical sex? We're talking about any sexual activity with another person before marriage. Satan's deception is that we would look at the world and say, man, uh, sure looks like they have a great sex life. I mean, they have sex with different people. When they get bored, they move on to someone else. It's always new and exciting, and Jesus' way seems kind of boring. Jesus says, listen, remember, remember, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And what Satan never tells you is that God designed sex to be a supernatural bond between two people that is a physical, emotional, and spiritual act. It's not simply meant to be I'm giving myself to you. It's meant to be I'm giving myself to only you, which is infinitely more profound. The Bible says, do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. The reality is that contrary to what Satan says, the Christian view of sex is that sex is far more important than the world says it is, a far higher and more profound act than the world says it is, and a far more profound thing on every level. Christianity doesn't think sex is not important or fun. It simply says, no, it's actually far more important than the world says it is. What Satan wants to do is cause us to reduce it to a purely physical act, robbing it of its intended purpose and meaning, damaging our souls in the process. Now I know that as we're talking about the sexual temptation is probably the strongest form of temptation that there is. And many of us have regrets over things we may have done in the past. And my intention is not to dredge it up and make any of us feel bad. My intention is to remind all of us that the Lord's ways are better. And hopefully if you've messed up sexually in the past, you've reached the point where you're willing to acknowledge, you know what, I wish I had done things the Lord's way. And so the way to deal with our past sin is not to ask nobody to ever bring it up, but to acknowledge, hey, you know what I learned from that? The Lord's ways were better. Because if we can realize that, then we can begin to say, therefore, I'm going to start doing things the Lord's way now. Because I've already experienced the negative effects of doing it my own way. That's what we want our kids to know. We want them to know the Lord's way is better. They lead to life. Rationally, the only way to marry the greatest lover in the world is to only ever have one lover because there's no comparisons. It creates a relationship where you will always have the best sex you've ever had in your life. It's a pretty good deal. And who wouldn't want a sex life completely free of comparisons because God's way gives you that freedom and that security. Again, the intention is not to make anybody feel bad, but to point out how much better the Lord's ways are than what we're being offered by Satan and the world. Write this down. God's ways always lead to life, while Satan's always leads to destruction. God's ways always lead to life, while Satan's always leads to destruction. Even if you're married and you're thinking, what am I going to do with this? You tell your kids. You tell your friends who come to you for advice. Tell them the truth. So if you're single, here's what you need to know. When it comes to what's sexually appropriate outside of marriage, the answer is easy. Nothing. Nothing. If you're using the word sexual, you've already passed the line. 
So I have a friend of mine who's a pastor, and he teaches that a relationship before marriage is like a plane that is idling on a runway. And at the end of the runway, the plane is taking off when you hit the end of that runway. If you haven't figured out, that's an analogy for sex, the plane taking off. His advice to couples is to realize that when you get into a relationship, the plane starts moving down the runway, starts moving slowly down the runway. And every step of intimacy you take gives that plane a little bit more gas, maybe shifts things up a gear. And now that plane is moving faster and faster and faster down the runway. That plane is gonna take flight at some point. So if you're not in a position to get married, you've got no business being in a plane that is moving down that runway. You got no business doing that. If you're not in a position to be married, you shouldn't even be in the plane. And if you're only gonna be in a position to get married in a few years, then you better make sure that plane is moving really, really slowly. And you might think, oh, we're, we're just kissing, we're just making out. But the thing is, you've shifted that plane into second gear. And there's an equation. After this amount of time, if you're moving at this speed, you will hit the end of that runway at a certain point. So use wisdom with that. Be honest with yourself if you're single. Don't lie to yourself. And remember this one super simple handy rule. What's sexually permissible to the unmarried Christian? Nothing. Nothing. It's a very, very easy thing. So write this down. Satan sabotages sex with premarital sex. Satan sabotages sex with premarital sex. Then we're going to go right into the next film. The second way Satan tries to sabotage our sex lives is with pornography. Pornography. Now we talk about this, and maybe you're here and you're thinking, oh, this is a weird thing to talk about. You know, most people in the room are Christians, but the reality is the statistics say that especially for men, pornography is the number one sin that the highest percentage of men in church are dealing with. Probably the least talked about. We literally talk about any other sin rather than pornography. And sadly, that statement is on track to soon be true for women as well. What porn does is it strips sexual satisfaction of all Christ-likeness. It strips the spouse of the opportunity to meet a need that only they should be meeting. It kills marital intimacy rather than strengthening it. It replaces serving with taking. It reduces sex to a purely physical act and a person made in the image of God to purely a sexual object. It trades the security and satisfaction of radical exclusivity for infinite variety which in reality only leads to future dissatisfaction. Porn destroys everything God intended sex to be. Even non-believers now recognize scientifically the devastating effects of pornography. It's a little bit graphic, but I want to read to you a quote from a secular doctor. Her name's Marianne Layden, and this is what she writes. She says, I have also seen in my clinical experience that pornography damages the sexual performance of the viewers. Pornography viewers tend to have problems with premature ejaculation and erectile dysfunction. Having spent so much time in unnatural sexual experiences with paper, celluloid, and cyberspace, they seem to find it difficult to have sex with a real human being. Now get this. Pornography is raising their expectation and demand for types and amounts of sexual experiences. At the same time, it is reducing their ability to experience sex. So on the physical side of things, it's as simple as muscle memory. If you're an athlete, if you're a golfer, you're trying to repeat the same swing over and over and over to program your body that every time it picks up a golf club, it swings it this way. So when you train your body and your mind to only be sexually stimulated one way, you train your body to not respond to sexual stimulation in any other way. If you're single, the man who has been deriving sexual satisfaction from porn will most likely not be able to physically have sex on his wedding night. He won't be able to. He's programmed his brain to respond to a different sexual stimulus. He's programmed his brain to think that's not how sex works, this is all different, this is a real person, what's going on here? On the mental side of things, it creates unrealistic expectations. It creates the expectation of infinite variety and what this does is it makes it almost impossible to be satisfied in a monogamous sexual relationship in marriage. You won't be satisfied with your spouse. 
And here's the darkest side of the thirst porn creates for infinite varieties. What excites a person today will not excite them forever. Over time and over less time than you think, it will require edgier and darker things to generate the same stimulation. You know, those people who get arrested for possession of variations of pornography that make us sick to our stomach, you know, not one of them started that way. Not one of them. How did they get there? Well, the things that stimulated them at one time no longer stimulated them and they needed something harder and something harder and something harder and they end up in a very, very, very dark place. That's where it leads. They got roped in by the lure of infinite variety. If you're single and you're dabbling in porn, you're setting up your future sex life, your real sex life with a real person, if you're dabbling in porn, you're setting that up for failure, setting yourself up for failure. And if you're married and dabbling in porn, you're sabotaging what's supposed to be the most intimate part of your marriage. And what I want you to understand from this, the reason I share this is because I didn't want to stand up here and just say, don't do it because God says it's wrong. I wanted to share this so that we would understand, don't do it because John 10.10 is true. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy and there's secular scientific evidence that everybody knows is true, that pornography destroys your sex life. It doesn't enhance it. It destroys it. Please recognize that porn's not a private sin. It's deeply hurting and harming your spouse, or it's deeply hurting and harming your future spouse. It is not a private sin. And I want to share this with you. This is what science says as well. But if you're addicted to porn and you get off of that, you break that cycle, it will take three to six months for your body to reset, but it is possible. But it will take three to six months of absence from pornography for your brain to become rewired. So don't even think that it's a case of, oh, I'll do this till I'm married and I'll stop right before I get married and it'll all be good. It'll take, take longer than you think, longer than you think. Don't be fooled, don't be fooled. And then finally on this subject, if you're struggling with porn, I want to encourage you to check out triplexchurch.com, xxxchurch.com. They have a great filter for your internet devices for your family, and they have great video courses available that you can go through on your own to help you find freedom from this issue. Well, many of you have heard of the Proverbs 31 wife. It's a phrase that came about because in the book of Proverbs, there's this chapter, chapter 31, that describes the virtuous wife, the godly wife. And it says this, who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. And then I want you to underline this. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. All the days of her life. And that principle could really be used to apply to a husband or a wife. And I asked you to underline that last verse that reads, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Because did you notice it doesn't say she does him good all the days of their married life. It says she does him good all the days of her life. That means even before they're married. So if you're single, if you have kids who are single, tell them this. God expects you, if you're single, to be doing good to your future spouse right now. If you're dabbling in porn, if you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, or if you are sexually active in any way, you are not doing good to your future spouse all the days of their life. Andy Stanley says it so well. He says, if you're single, become the person the person you're looking for is looking for. Did you catch that? Become the person that the person you're looking for is looking for. If you want someone who's saving themselves for you and being sexually pure, doing the things now that will lead to a great sex life in the future, you need to be living the same way right now. And that applies to every other area. This is a side note, but it's too good to not point out. It applies to every other area as well. If you're a dude, and you're like, oh yeah, I want some hot chick who takes her physical fitness seriously, has a toned body, and you're on the sofa popping Cheetos, you need to know that woman, your future wife, is not in the gym going, I hope this is a body good enough to attract a guy who eats a lot of Cheetos. That's not what's happening. 
You have to be the kind of person that you want to attract. The law is you will attract what you are. That's either great news for you or it's terrible news for you. Make sure that it's good news for you. Make sure it's good news for you. Write this down. Those who are single are to commit to their future spouse today. They are to commit to their future spouse today. And then write this down as well. The last big way that Satan tries to destroy God's plan for sex is through extramarital affairs. Extramarital affairs. This is sexual activity outside of marriage once you're married. And, and I know we're just flying past some very serious topics that could each be a message on their own. But that's what we're doing. We're just trying to hit some bullet points. If you want to talk more about this in private, I'm available to meet with anybody. But here's what's so tragic about having an affair in marriage. As we see someone who has the 20% that our spouse doesn't have. And then we trade the 80% that our spouse does have for the 20% that they don't. And later on we realize that. And people always regret it. Because whatever your background is, 80% is bigger than 20%. And I'm only going to say three quick things on this. First is you'll regret it for the rest of your life if you're unfaithful to your spouse. My pastor used to say that if the thought ever crossed his mind, he would just begin to think through the consequences, the real consequences. He would imagine sitting in front of his wife as she broke down crying in front of him. He would imagine having to tell his kids. He would think about all the years that would have to go into rebuilding that trust. When you're honest about what the fallout would be from an affair, you realize very quickly it's just not worth it. Secondly, remember the radical exclusivity thing we talked about? That's everything when it comes to marital faithfulness. You do not need to be Facebook friends with your ex. Ever. Ever. And I don't care what you're thinking, you are not the one exception to this rule. You do not need to be Facebook friends with your ex. Even if they're not saved, can I just tell you, God will send somebody else to lead them to Jesus. He did not give you that ministry. Marriage is about forsaking all other options, all plan Bs, all backup plans. And I'd say this, you can be friends with someone of the opposite sex as a couple. They can come over for dinner. But you can't really be one-on-one friends with someone of the opposite sex once you're married in a way that involves you texting one-on-one or having your own relationship outside of your identity as a couple. Man, that sounds harsh. Go back to the radical exclusivity thing. But I'm trustworthy. No, you're not. Let me put this in perspective. Adam not being able to say no to a naked woman led to the downfall of the entire human race. So no, you're not strong enough and the risks are not acceptable. Thirdly, don't ever go outside your marriage to find what you should inside your marriage. Be it sexual, be it conversational, be it emotional or verbal encouragement, whatever it is, and I should be more specific, don't go to anyone outside your marriage of the opposite sex. Whatever it is God meant for you to find those things in your spouse. Don't go to someone of the opposite sex outside your marriage to find those things. I don't care if they're a good listener, if they have sparkling conversation, whatever it is, those needs are meant to be met in your marriage. And ladies, if you're thinking there's no harm in conversation, conversation over time becomes more and more intimate, and at some point there's an emotional connection that's established, and generally for women, once that emotional connection is established, a sexual connection is what follows it. If you have that emotional connection with someone of the opposite sex outside of your marriage, you need to sever that because you are on the runway in a plane and we're simply passing time until the inevitable happens. It will happen, it absolutely will happen. We don't have time to to talk through again what to do if you've already had an affair and you're dealing with that or, or you haven't confessed it yet, but just again, I'm available in full confidence to talk with you about that if you wanna do that at any point. Well, after working through the things we need to stay away from in order to have a good sex life, let's switch gears, let's get to the fun part and talk about what we should do. Because if you're single, while nothing is sexually possible outside of marriage, in marriage, 
all things are possible. Hallelujah. So make a note of this. What's sexually permissible outside of marriage? Nothing. What's sexually permissible within marriage? Everything. And there are obvious caveats like your spouse being agreeable. But assuming they're agreeable, there's freedom in Jesus. Paul gives us the word of God in 1 Corinthians 7 when he writes this. And you might want to turn there in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 7, he says this. Because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. And let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now when it says, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband, the word have there is in the sexual tense. That's what it's talking about. So get this, because this is a big deal. The solution that the Bible gives for sexual temptation is having a spouse. God's plan is that our sexual needs would be met in our marriage to such a degree that we would have no unfulfilled sexual needs. Are you getting the the weight of that statement? Are you picking up on the, the seriousness of the responsibility we have to our spouses to help them walk in sexual purity? Right off the bat, we see that our first duty is not to ourselves. It's not simply to make sure that we've had enough, but to make sure that our spouse is sexually satisfied. Ladies, listen. You want to take care of that at home because that's God's plan. You might not even like it. You might not like hearing me say this, but listen, it's God's plan. It's right there in the Word of God. And last time I taught on this subject, I shared this illustration. It's a good illustration. So a couple gets married and the wife says, you know, I'm just so excited to be married to you and I want you to know that every evening when you come home, I will have dinner waiting on the table for you. You never, ever, ever have to eat anywhere else. I will be the one who provides you dinner only here at home. The husband goes, this is, this is just wonderful. So it goes on for a while and then one day passes, he comes home and there's no dinner. Second day passes, he comes home, there's no dinner. Third day, he's driving. He drives past Burger King and the smell of the fries just wafts into his nostrils and he is, he is overcome in his weak state and he stops and he gets Burger King and, and he eats it in the parking lot shamefully and then drives home. And his wife says, what's that, what's that smell? I can, I can smell it on your clothes. And the husband hangs his head and he said, I, I was just so hungry I went to Burger King. And the wife says, Burger King? But Burger King is so trashy. Why would you go to Burger King? Everybody goes to Burger King. He says, I know, I know, I'm sorry, but I just, I couldn't help myself. Now, we would all say, well, he wasn't justified in going to Burger King, but we would all understand why he went to Burger King. So here's the deal in marriage. When you get married, you are agreeing, you are committing to meet the sexual needs of your spouse. You might be like, hold up, hold up, I never agreed to that. Go look at your wedding vows. You had the word lover in there and all my being in there as well. And the reason we made you take those vows is because we knew you had no idea what you were doing when you did it, but we knew it would be important later. That's what it's talking about. So you told your spouse, I am going to meet all those needs for you. In return, I want you to commit that you will only have those needs met by me deal. When one person does not hold up their end of the bargain, they're creating a very dangerous situation. And I want to be emphatic. I am not saying that justifies adultery. I'm saying it explains adultery. And those are very, very different things. It doesn't justify it, but it explains one of the major ways that it happens. It's one of the main reasons that it happens. And if we don't want that to happen, all we have to do is do things the Lord's way instead and be the solution for our spouse's sexual needs. 
God's intention, write this down, God's intention is that we would be the solution to our spouse's sexual needs and temptations. We would be the solution to our spouse's sexual needs and temptations. And this doesn't get mentioned a lot when we talk about sex and marriage, but it's, I just can't say it enough, it's a profound responsibility that God gives us to say, your job is to help your spouse walk in purity in this area by not giving them a reason to go and look for that anywhere else. Now, it doesn't guarantee they're gonna do that. Sometimes we sin even when the other person is doing everything right. But man, the odds of that happening sure go down when we do things the Lord's way. Then Paul says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due. I want you to underline, do her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Sometimes this gets lost in translation, so let me share with you how the New American Standard renders it. It says the husband, I put it on your outline, must, underline, must fulfill his duty to his wife. And likewise also the wife to her husband. If your Bible says should, you just need to cross that out and write the word must instead, must. The verbiage in the original language makes it clear that the word due or duty is referring to this affection, which is a sexual affection, as one would refer to a debt. I put the original word and meaning on your outline. It means to owe, to owe money, to be in debt for, that which is due, the debt. So we're told that the husband is indebted to his wife to show her affection. And likewise, the wife is indebted to her husband to show her affection. Some of you spouses are way too far in debt to your spouse. And you need to get your affairs in order in this area. So husbands, when you go home tonight, You just kick open that door. You come in there at the right moment, you say, baby, like the Apostle Paul, I do not believe in debt. I'm here to clear mine. And you take care of business, that's what you need to do. That's a word from your pastor for you. Now listen, I'm I'm sorry if this is awkward for you, but here at New Hope Church, we believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible and we need to be faithful to that. So here's why this is a big deal. And in our minds, We men, we like to view things like cuddling or or anything around that area as doing a favor for our wives. And wives often like to view having sex with their husband as doing a favor for their husband. And God's word destroys that idea. He says, no, 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 no. You owe them that affection. You took on that debt when you agreed to marry them. We don't view paying our car loan or electrical bill as doing those companies a favor. I'm gonna do a favor to Visa. I'm gonna pay my credit card bill. I'm gonna do a favor to the bank. I'm gonna pay my mortgage. We understand we owe them that debt because we agreed to a contract that we knew the terms of. So why in the world would we think that when it comes to the sex life of a married couple, We're doing a favor to our spouse when God's word says, no, no, you owe them that debt. You owe them that. What? You mean I'm just supposed to be available to my spouse to meet their needs for affection whenever they have them? Hey, it doesn't matter what I think. Let's let the word of God speak. It says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Don't you love how clear God's word is? So in marriage, you belong to each other. Remember that whole two become one flesh thing that you thought was so romantic during your wedding vows that made you cry and you thought was so sweet? This is what it looks like practically in the sex life of believers. Now why would God say this? Because as we said earlier, the primary purpose of marriage is discipleship. God wants us to learn how to practically put somebody else, our spouse, ahead of ourselves the way that Jesus put everyone ahead of himself when he was on the earth. In the previous chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote this to the same church. He said, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This is a foundational truth of Christianity. We do not belong to ourselves. Jesus has bought us with his blood. He's bought us. So what he says goes. And we like to come before him and say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, 
Wherever you want me to go, here I am, send me. Just tell me what you want me to do. And you know what Jesus says? He says, listen, if you're married, here's what I want you to do. View your body as belonging to your spouse. Help them walk in sexual purity and righteousness. That's what God has asked us to do. And so when we say no, we're not saying no to our spouse. We're saying no to God. Because he said, this is what I want you to do. And when we say no, we're saying no, that's not what I want to do, so I'm not going to do that. This is so huge. We have no right to withhold from our spouse that which God has given to them. We don't have that right. I have a choice. You, you don't. You don't. And if you're uncomfortable with the idea of doing something because Jesus says so, you've sort of got a problem with the whole following Jesus thing. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. So men, when she wants to cuddle and you're like, oh, and I mean cuddling, not the cuddling that leads to sex. When you know this is a dead end road. When she wants to cuddle, <laughs> your body belongs to her. It does. When she wants to just lie on top of you and fall asleep while you watch TV and you're like, I'm not gonna be able to move for two hours. Your body belongs to her. And ladies, when he wants to get down to blessing town and you're like, I don't feel like it. Your body belongs to him, but it's my body. No, it's not. That's part of the marriage deal. God is so good. Write this down. We are called to be sexually available to meet the needs of our spouse. We're called to be sexually available to meet the needs of our spouse. Guys, if your wife isn't filling in her outline, you just lean over and write that in for her. Just help her out. I'm telling you, if there is a man in this congregation who has never memorized a verse before, he's memorizing this one. He's probably going to have it carved out of wood above the entrance to your bedroom in just a week. He's going to be like, I got a verse. I got a verse. I love the word of God. Then Paul says, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I like how the King James Version renders that first phrase. It says, defraud ye not one the other. And I like this because what Paul is doing is he's addressing the issue of withholding sex from your spouse under the pretense of being spiritual. Sorry, sweetie, I I don't want to have sex for a while because I really need to focus on prayer. And I'm going through a 36-week study with Beth Moore, and I just, I just want to give that all of my emotional attention. Paul says, hey, that's okay if both people agree to it, but it needs to be for a short time. So if your spouse is agreeable and you want to take some time to focus on prayer, then you can take those four hours. The Word of God gives you that permission. But if your spouse is like, I'm not okay with that, then you don't have an agreement. That's why it's called an agreement. Paul is simply saying this. He's saying, don't use spirituality as a pretense to not have sex with your spouse. We're going to end with these two practical pointers. Two practical pointers. Uh, just go ahead and put that chart of the human body on the screen. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. So first practical pointer. This, this is everything. This is everything when it comes to a great sex life. Communicate. Communicate. Ask for what you want. You do not have because you do not ask. I know I'm pulling that verse horribly out of context, but it still applies here. Sometimes we need somebody to just tell us, do you realize your spouse will never, ever, no matter how long you're married, no matter how many walks you take, your spouse will never be able to read your mind. Ever. That will never happen. And yet so many couples are sexually frustrated because they're thinking, I wish he would figure out that I really like this or that I don't like that. They're never going to figure it out, ever. You actually have to tell them. You have to tell them. I know, how do I come up with stuff this deep? But it's probably the number one sexual issue for couples. And let me say this. If your spouse does this, if they have this conversation with you, you just gotta be very careful and gentle with the response because I don't know many things that are more intimate and trusting than your spouse communicating with you on this subject. 
So here's some things that you don't want to say in response. You want to do what? Don't do that. Don't do that. You can respond with how they teach you to respond in the alpha course when somebody says something crazy, which is to go, hmm, how interesting. How interesting. That's a more, that's a more gentle response, and then you can get your thoughts together. But just recognize that you probably crave and desire your spouse to be that open and honest with you. And the way you respond will probably determine whether or not they'll ever do it again. So just be very, very careful as you work through that. But please recognize they're never going to read your mind. And a conversation is far better than just going, ugh, in, in the middle of the moment. So have that conversation with your spouse. Second piece of practical advice. If you're not sure what to do or how to do it well, read a book. We read books on gardening. We read books on choosing colors to paint our house. None of us when we got married said, oh man, I can't wait. I am going to be the most average lover. None of us said that. When we were teenage boys, we probably had delusions of grandeur. But, but, if you need to know how to do something, read, read a book. Get great at it. If there's something you want to be great at, this is it. I mean, the payoff for jogging is that you only kind of hate it after you've done it a while. Payoff for being good at this is it's a really good payoff. It's a really good payoff. So listen, God intended sex to be a binding agent, something supernatural that keeps a couple in intimacy and helps them walk in righteousness. And he designed it to be something that renews that intimacy again and again and again in a couple. That's God's design. If you know that you've not been doing your part in your marriage, then repent. And remember that to repent doesn't mean just saying sorry. It means changing your behavior, changing direction. The Bible says faith without works is dead. Okay? So when you get home today, you apologize to your spouse. You let them know that you want things to be different, and then you prove your sincerity. So married people, God gave you to your spouse to be a blessing to them and to meet their sexual needs. You have a duty to do that. You owe them that debt. Single people, you need to commit to your future spouse today. Set yourself up for a great sex life, not a difficult one with challenges that you don't need to have. You don't need to have. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much that your word has so much helpful and practical to say to us in the area of sex. And Lord, we recognize that you gave it to us as a gift. You gave it to us as something mystical, something profound, something enjoyable that would renew intimacy in our marriages over and over and over again. And Father, we repent if we've let that slip. God, we repent if we've used that to gain power or to prove a point in conflict. God, we repent if we've not done our part to just come together and renew that intimacy over and over. And Father, I pray where there's been difficulties in marriages, Lord, would you pour out your grace? Our part is humility, and then you'll supernaturally pour out the grace. So Father, if we've erred in any way, in our marriages in this area, Lord, would you help us to humble ourselves, go to our spouses and just say, man, I, I just want to fix this. I want to make this better. I want this to look different to how it is right now. Father, help us to do that where we need to. And we know and we believe in faith that if we do, you'll pour out grace upon grace upon grace. If we provide the humility, you will provide the grace. Father, I pray you'll help us to reject every lie of the enemy in the area of sex, every deception that Satan would throw at us. And Lord, we just pause once again to acknowledge that as in all things, your way is the way that leads to life. Yours is the road that leads to wholeness. Yours is the path that leads to joy and to peace and to fulfillment. Father, help us not to trade life for death, joy for regret. Help us to choose your way because your way is better as it always is and we acknowledge that. Lord, forgive us where we haven't done things your way. 
Thank you that your word says you have cast our sins into the sea of your forgetfulness. But Lord, where we have not been able to forget, would you bring grace? Would you bring healing? Would you bring freedom from shame? And in the name of Jesus, we just pray that if any former shame is holding back anyone who's married from experiencing the fullness of what you have for them, Lord, would you just set them free in Jesus' name? Father, thank you that you love us. You didn't just leave us to figure it out, but you gave us your word. You gave us instruction. Help us to submit to your word. Help us to honor you in every way, to put our spouses, present and future, ahead of ourselves, and to live as servants as you did, our example. We love you, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.